Alrighty, welcome to another edition here of Beyond Eight Figures. The band is back together. Back together. I'm so excited. We got Mary Goulet back in the house. Hello, Mary Goulet. Hello. You're looking very fresh <laughs> and happy. <laughs> and you traveled the world. Where you wait? You went to where did you go? You went to Croatia? Croatia. How'd you, how'd, you, how'd you decide to go to Croatia? I'm always curious like how people end up going so to... So clients such... of mine, friends, clients, um, every year, well, starting last year, they went to BVI. What's that? Oh, British Virgin, Virgin Islands. Islands. Okay. And mm-hmm. he's a certified captain. So, I'm certified. <laughs> yeah, certifiable. <laughs> um, so we had a catamaran. So seven of us were on this fairly decent-sized catamaran. So we flew over there. and Did you not get sick? No, like, I did not. Really? Oh, man. I can't and there was imagine. one day it was really rocky. Like, oh, That's but impressive. it was fine. Yeah, so, it's pretty impressive. So he's living beyond eight figures, which is great. So it's good to have friends <laughs> like that, right? No, But um, so so but this guy, client, goes to the islands and then said, hey, we're going to go to Croatia. Croatia? Yeah, so you, you just rented a boat for a week. Sweet. Everybody gets their boat on Saturday and comes back in Friday night, and they can stay on the boat, and then they leave Saturday so, so that's what we did. So, how, But you were gone for more than a week, though, I thought, right? Weren't you? How long were you gone for? She well, was just sick when she got back. Oh, that's right. Yeah, was, that's right. Yeah, last week. I was, but yeah. But anyway, no, it was amazing. And there's a lot of money in the Mediterranean and Europe. There's, I bet. We were probably like 10 Americans on every island we went to. There was no no American. Wait, there's so you went to a whole bunch of islands around Croatia? Yes. Oh, I didn't see. I didn't even know there were like Croatian islands. I know there were Greek yeah, islands because I've been to a couple of them, but there are Croatian the first Island. one took us six hours to get to. Oh, God. By boat? Yes. Ooh. You know that Canada is the country directly north to us, right? Canada. That's that big thing. That, <laughs> yes. That, yes. I, that one I've seen. And they just legalized marijuana, which is great across the whole country. So Yippee. wait. So there are Croatian islands. And you went, yes. and you went island hopping. Yes. Interesting. Awesome. So you and Dave, you guys went, hung out, had fun, good quality. Yeah, it was time. amazing. The, that's fun. It was amazing. The, the, the yachts. So we're in this little catamaran, 39-footer, four staterooms and two heads. And, you know, you're playing cards, you're playing a board game or whatever, because you're just sick, stuck on the ocean for three hours before you get to moor. No Wi-Fi? Or maybe. No. No, probably not, right? Um, but you don't want Wi-Fi anyway at that point. Yeah, and I look up, and there's this massive, massive yacht, the size of, like, a cruise ship, practically. Jesus. And it just goes barreling past us. Oh, man. And we saw so many of those. It was Yeah. Sick money. Fortunately, did not toss you over. So oh. good on that, right? Oh no. man, right, so a lot of fun. So amazing. So you'd recommend? So did you actually go into like some of the cities of Croatia, or you were just mostly on the islands? So you go to the island, and then you go into the towns. So you come around the windy side of the island, and all of a sudden you see this cute little town tucked into this humongous hill, mm. and they have churches and. Fabulous food. They're not on the EU, so they have their own currency. Really? So our dollar was really strong there. Sweet. Everyone's super nice. Different dialects of everybody from all over Europe on holiday. Hmm. Well, it's good to have you back, Thank Mary Thank you. Goulet. Missed you guys. Safe and sound. Richie Ote, what's up, my brother? Good to see you. Not to traveling see you. anywhere. Not traveling anywhere, although you got a staycation, you were saying. Oh, uh, yeah. Try to enjoy a little bit more of the summer here with the little end before she's got to get back to school. So are you uh, going to do anything fun and exciting locally? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then and then uh, October, we're going to take her out of school and go to Aruba. Oh, sweet. Oh, nice. That'll be great. Yeah. Well, I made the joke because the Europeans, 
they only have a two-hour flight to get to Croatia. Okay. Pretty much from anywhere. Stockholm, we flew in, two hours get to split. Then we went to Paris, two hours to get to Paris, you know, to come home. Mm -hmm. So all these Europeans, that's their playground. And I said, and ours is Vegas. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Given the choices, right? Oh, man. So welcome back. Good to have the gang band back together here. Wade's got on control in the studio. Kelly's got on control back at headquarters. And here on Beyond Eight Figures, we sit down with entrepreneurs who have either exited for more than $10 million or currently run businesses that gross more than $10 million annually and get to the bottom of how they can afford wonderful vacations to places like Croatia and, and such things like that. And, uh, and uh, of course, cover a lot of ground in terms of how they started or scaled uh, and in some cases exited from that business. And if you've missed any of the past episodes, make sure you go back and listen to some of the awesome sit-downs that we've had with entrepreneurs, uh, many of whom have gone into the nine figures and uh, even some billionaires have joined us here on the show. And of course, we talk business, but we also talk about what's beyond eight figures as well, because there's so much more to life than just the uh, number of zeros, hopefully with something other than a zero uh, in front of it. And that's uh, that's always the goal there, to put at least something other than a zero in front of all of those other zeros and, uh, and, and rock and roll through life and, and, of course, through business as well. So today we're really uh, just honored and, uh, and super excited to have on a, a guest who um, is lovingly known as the world's fastest Jew. So uh, that's awesome. So Stephen Sashin from Zero Shoes, and that's X-E-R-O, Zero Shoes. Welcome to Beyond Eight Figures, man. Good having you here. Well, first of all, thank you, thank you. Secondly, uh, fastest Jew over 55. Uh, uh, yes, sorry, I had to clarify, yes. <laughs> and third, you know there are people in Croatia saying, and one of them's going, you know, I took this vacation, we took a boat around New Jersey, and they're going, New Jersey, how'd you get there? <laughs> it's so lovely that time of year. All right, so um, first of all, does the hair slow you down when you run, man? You've got this, these beautiful locks of sort of Kenny G thing going on, but, uh, but a modern Kenny G thing going on. Do the locks slow you down at all? Are you hitting on me, Ulcer? Uh, so um, uh, apparently it's aerodynamically more efficient. Uh, catches a little air, gives me a little lift. Um, it's kind of like a golf ball. You know, the curls just give me a little extra lift, I think. Nice. And uh, and so it's, it's really interesting because seldom do I meet uh, people who have the exact same coupling in terms of the names as, as me and my wife. And so... We thought we were the only Steve and Lena in the world, and uh, and we come to find out that that you guys uh, are also Steve and Lena. How, how, well, I hate how to break cool it to you. I'm actually, we're actually a Steven and Lena. Oh, so, see, there you, you know, go. All right. Although, you know, we have friends uh, who are basically the same height that we, my wife and I are, and they're Scott and Layla. And there's times where when we're hanging out and we literally just get each other's names wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so give us a little bit of an understanding of the business that you're currently running. And is that how you meet the criteria for Beyond Eight Figures? Or did you have another business that exceeded eight figures in revenue or you exited from that business for more than eight figures? Just give us a sense of how you meet the criteria. I'm, I'm in the currently currently running a business that meets the criteria. And so that's zero shoes. And the way I like to describe what we're doing is actually just by asking a question to people. I say, so... Um, at the end of the day, do your feet feel better than they did at the beginning of the day? Mm. And if the answer is no, which it is for most people, um, I say it's, well, because your shoes aren't letting your feet do what's natural, which is bend and flex and move and feel. And zero shoes are designed to let your feet do what feet are supposed to do. And so, uh, in fact, I also say uh, we we make shoes and sandals that are so comfortable. We've literally had people email us to say they went to bed still wearing them because they forgot they were on. Oh, man. And, 
and people use these for everything from taking a walk to running ultra marathons. Um, and in short, you know, we nine and a half years ago, my wife and I uttered the dangerous entrepreneurial phrase, how hard could this be? And started a business in the most competitive industry in the world, perhaps, and that's footwear. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so just, just so folks are, are clear on this, you had no background <laughs> at all in, in footwear. Like you weren't one of those marketing guys for Nike who said, you know, let me, let me figure out how to, how to build a better mousetrap here and just you know, mm-hmm. took all that experience and then got into the to the footwear industry. Did, did you guys have any experience in this at all? Yeah, our entire uh, history with footwear was uh, having purchased shoes occasionally. Nice. Yeah. Nice. That qualifies you to some extent, right? <laughs> well, you know, it's an interesting thing. I mean, what we like to say that we're doing, we're creating a movement movement. Uh, and what that means is we're trying to make natural movement the obvious, better, healthy choice the way natural food currently is. And when I think about my background from that perspective, things do add up. Um, As an undergraduate at Duke, I did research on cognitive aspects of motor skill acquisition on just how people learn to move differently. I've I've been, uh, I was an All-American gymnast. I'm a master's All-American sprinter. I've taught um, every kind of movement from tap dancing to gymnastics, to Zen archery, to running, to yoga, to Tai Chi. And so, and, and, and then I've been an internet marketer since 1992. Uh, and so put it all together. And this is kind of like the perfect storm of things for me to be doing. <laughs> That's funny, man. So, and, and just so we're clear here and we can kind of timestamp this a little bit, but projected revenue for 2019, where, where do you guys think you'll end up at the well, end of the year? Here? <laughs> considering that uh, 10 minutes ago, Trump announced that he's adding a 10% tariff for the remaining products that are being imported from China, which includes us. I don't know what that's going to do to us. Mm. We were projecting 13 million, um, and that was kind of conservatively after we made some adjustments from the first round of tariffs and from uh, running out of inventory again. And we're also waiting to get some orders from some large retailers that we've that have picked us up this year. So the next six months, oh, we also just launched a new product today, and we're launching five new products in two weeks. So put it all together, and um, uh, again, publicly, we were projecting 13, but um, the universe is changing underneath our feet. Yeah, literally. And I'll obviously let Mary and Richie jump in here because I know you guys have a load of questions. But let me just one more quick logistical question. Have you ever raised any money for this or is it all bootstrapped? How uh, how are you guys? How are you held? Is it privately yeah. owned? Do you have shareholders? Yeah, uh, we're a privately owned company. Um, we we've done a couple of things. We're bootstrapped primarily. We got some debt equity or sorry, some debt capital from a local family fund that we, some people that we met who, who were managing money for a very wealthy family. That was way back when, <clears throat> excuse me, we, um, we had a $500,000 SBA loan that we got a number of years ago. We recently had that taken out along with our, our family fund money by JP Morgan Chase. They gave us a $2.3 million loan. And then in 2017, we did um, what, it, what became one of the most successful consumer product equity crowdfunding raises and raised a little over a million dollars from 1100 of our customers, friends and fans. Hmm. And so in exchange for that, was that you're going to get a pair of shoes at a discounted no, no, price was, or was that? It was an equity raise. It so, was pure equity. Yeah. So that was uh, roughly that million and change was roughly 4%, a little less than 4% of the company. So it was at a 28.5 pre-money valuation. God, that's insane. Wow. So that's terrific. What, what platform did you use for, for that? And none um, really. Really? Um, no, no, well, we used a tool called, I got to remember, um, I don't, didn't really like it very much, uh, Crowd Engine, if I'm remembering correctly. It's basically, here's the thing, the platforms like Start Engine and um, oh, I don't, WeFunder and all the rest, um, we didn't really like them very much. I didn't like the user interfaces and more. They wanted to take ridiculous percentages for just running the campaign. And, mm-hmm. and I said, look, 
this is all going to be me. I mean, I don't know what you're adding to the mix, but this is going to be me marketing that's going to make it work. And to, to make that point, we talked to, I think we talked to Start Engine after we'd raised about a half a million. And they said, well, we think we can get you another $250,000, but it's going to cost you like $100,000 to do that. And we're going to do all this marketing and blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, I don't think, um, I don't think that's going to work for me. And when we were all done, I said, just so you know, I went from half a million to over a million by sending out three emails. So I didn't really need you for that. Yeah. So yeah. Crowd Engine was basically a glorified shopping cart. And I think um, one of the reasons that we liked them was because when I first saw it, I had a bunch of ideas about how to improve their product, just because I've been, again, an internet marketer for quite a long time. And they were amenable to the suggestions, but at a certain point, I think the programmers got really sick of me. And so um, uh, that became a, a bit confrontational towards the end. And, and frankly, we were also the first company to do an equity crowdfunding raise without a registered broker-dealer. We did it totally direct on our own by figuring out how to do that in a handful of states that said you couldn't do it, and we discovered you could, and then we taught how to do that to everybody else who's ever done it since. And I don't necessarily recommend doing it that way because we probably left a half a million dollars on the table from people whose brokers would not let them deal direct and would only go through a broker-dealer. Interesting. Hmm. And so, uh, again, it's a very interesting conversation that I didn't expect to be having around funding. Yeah. Uh, didn't even know that you did that. It's super cool. How, how did you justify the valuation at the time? And you said it was 4%? Well, it was a 28.5 pre-money valuation. Right. So 28.5 pre-money valuation. And so you raised a million dollars and- A number of million. I mean, we didn't have a cap on it. We raised what we raised. It just so happens that that we ended up getting- when, when I just, I'll tell you one thing that was interesting. Um, we, we had the idea that we were going to just keep the whole thing open so that as people got introduced to our company, they could invest at any time. But it became very clear to me after a few months that unless you gave people deadlines and fear of loss and all the usual marketing things, they weren't going to take action. So when I emailed saying, hey, we're closing this down in three weeks, we got $250,000 within 24 hours. So, and then we got another couple hundred thousand in the last 48 hours. Mm -hmm. But so, revenue at the time, I mean, again, if you're projecting uh, now, and I'm sorry to beat this horse here, but this is just so fine. damn interesting to me. So if you were do, if you're projecting to do 13 now, so 20, in, so, 2017, I, I got to do it backwards because I can't think and think forward anymore. <laughs> so, so 2018, we did um, just under 8.9, 2017, we did 5.5. Um, so we, we were doing the raise in the middle of 2017. So 2016, we were at 2.7. So, or two seven four. So twenty. When we started this, we had booked two point seven four the year before, and we were projecting. I don't remember what we were projecting actually, but we ended up doing five and change. Wow, that's unreal. I mean, really impressive. And 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 I'm going down this path because what's going off light bulbs crazy for me at the moment is is what we're doing with Liquor.com, right? Mm. Which has just been struggling in in far too many ways. And I can tell you, with the great domain and with traffic and with the email subscriber base and whatnot part of what I've been pushing the board to do is actually to, to do a better job of going to our raving fans of 4 million email subscribers and, you know, the people who come to the site and they actually had kicked around the idea of doing an equity raise directly from our subscriber base. And so well, this is and knowing that you did that, we may actually have another conversation. Well, my friend. I'll, yeah, I'm happy to do it. And I'll say a couple of things about it. Um, you, you hit the nail on the head. The key to doing an equity crowdfunding raise is having a crowd of raving fans. This is not, it's not something you want to do to build a crowd with equity. That doesn't really work. Um, and 
And also, if you're not, if you don't have a crowd of raving fans, you're going to spend way too much money on making the whole thing happen mm-hmm. on marketing and logistics and all the rest. So that's a big part of it. And in fact, what inspired us to do the crowdfunding raise to begin with was a couple of things. One, um, we're sort of socialists at heart. And all I mean by that is we like the idea that anybody can invest in a company that they believe in and wants to support rather than just well-heeled accredited investors. It's like, why make it only available to the rich white guys? We just thought that was sort of reprehensible. And, and the other thing is that we view we viewed equity crowdfunding as a way to build a veritable army of raving fans who mm-hmm. really, really have demonstrated they want to be part of our growth. And so it's, it was as much, if not more, a marketing play than a fundraising play. Mm-hmm. And last question on this, liquidity, as far as your concern, as far as their concern, well, does that come on exit? Do you then kick dividends? Do you? How are they going to see a dollar back on that? Yeah, it's a great question. I'll tell you something really insane. Because we weren't working with a registered broker-dealer, we literally weren't even allowed to say, not only were we not allowed to say, here's how you might make money or lose money by doing this, we couldn't even point them to a Wikipedia article that told them how they could make money or lose money by doing this. Mm. The SEC is super, super protective over, or not protective, restrictive about what uh, equity crowdfunding companies can do, even though the number of failures or scams or whatever in equity crowdfunding is a fraction of a fraction of a percent. And in the real world, it's many, many, many percent. So, you know, they're barking up the wrong tree because equity crowdfunding is inherently self-policing. But um, but the now that it's done, the answer to the question is uh, that most likely if there is a change of control or a liquidity event, that's when something will happen. And it depends on what the structure of that deal is. If it's, a, if it's an equity deal or an asset deal, that could change things. There's also a lot of people who are trying to... No, I mean, look, you could sell your shares to a friend and family. I mean, that's totally legit. Um, but there are a number of people who are trying to create a secondary market for equity crowd shares uh, so that they are tradable. They do become a, a real commodity rather than just your investment in a privately held company. Yeah. It's so interesting and uh, lots more really, questions. But. It's really interesting and it really is one of these things that could change the world, which is why, not surprisingly, there are uh, lobbyists from Wall Street who are trying to make this not happen. Yeah, right. Uh, let me kick it over to you guys and uh, then I'll circle back. But please. I, Go ahead. Okay. I, I So since we've been doing this show, there's been pretty much that I've seen four pillars that people kind of fall into. There's obviously many more than this, but it's usually they they saw the vision and the dream and they they wanted to build it, they built it, and then they wanted to keep it. They saw the dream, they wanted to build it, they built it, then they wanted to sell it. They didn't see the dream, but they had a vision and it grew, they grew into the dream and then they wanted to keep it. Or They didn't see it, they grew into it, and then they wanted to sell it. It kind of comes down to those four. And I'm just wondering, before I get into the particular one of the quotes I saw you had in the pre-interview, which one of those did were you? Yeah, we're the fifth. So (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I guess we may be in no dream one in a way. I mean, the way it happened is pretty simple. Um, or silly or crazy or unpredictable or all of the above. Um, I got back into sprinting after a 30-year break when I was 45 and was getting injured pretty much constantly. 
And a friend of mine who's a world champion cross-country runner said, take off your shoes and run barefoot and see what you learn. And what I learned was why I was getting injured and how to stop getting injured. So my injuries went away. I developed arches in my lifelong flat feet. Um, I, again, became a master's All-American, uh, fastest Jew over 55, although then <laughs> over 45. And, uh, and was just so enthralled with this whole natural movement experience. I wanted more of that. So I, frankly, I would have walked around barefoot if I could, which I actually do a lot of. But I figured it would be nice to be able to get into restaurants or places that are not that are not barefoot friendly. So I made a pair of sandals based on this ten thousand year old design idea, um, and then you know they I made a pair for my wife and a couple of other barefoot runners, and they told two friends and they told two friends. And when we were not shampooing, I made sandals. And then um, one guy says to me, "I'm writing a book on barefoot running. I got a contract, and if you treated this little hobby of making sandals like a business, I would put you in the book. So if you had a website, you know." do that. And I, at that point I made maybe 500, 600 websites. So I rush home and I pitch this brilliant idea to my wife who assures me that it is really stupid and, and insists that I not do it. And I said, okay, you're right. And so I waited till she went to bed before I built a website <laughs> and it just really, it just took off. And for the first three and a half years, we were a do it yourself sandal kit company. And then we just kind of followed well, there are a couple of things that happened. One is my understanding of natural movement and the value of natural movement and the problem with modern footwear grew over time from being in the business and uh, and just seeing the experience that I and hundreds of thousands of other people were having and diving into it really deeply. Again, it really fit with everything that I've done in my life. Um, and then, oh, there's one other part to it. Um, and then we just really followed what the customers were asking for. So we had this do-it-yourself thing. And they said, I don't want to do it myself. So we made ready-to-wear sandals. They said, that's cool, but I need shoes when it gets cold. So we made shoes. And now we have this whole line of casual and performance shoes and sandals. But to your point about the sticking with it or selling it, um, it's an interesting thing. The biggest concern that we have, especially because we are, it sounds hyperbolic when I say it, since we are trying to change the world, is that we want to do the right thing for the brand and the product. We know the effect that these products can have, just from comfort, where people find them addictively comfortable, letting your feet move naturally, to the real benefits that people report, many of which I can't legally say because we don't have some research study that's done on our shoes that prove X, Y, or Z. It's insane. Those of us who are in the natural movement world, and there are very few of us, we have to prove with science things like using your body can make it stronger. Not using it makes it weaker. I mean, it's ridiculous, but the big shoe companies have never had to do any of this. They have no proof for anything that they claim or anything that they do, but we have to prove what people have known for thousands of years. So anyway, um, we don't really have a preference about what the future looks like. I like to say we're living by the Yogi Berra aphorism, when you get to a fork in the road, take it. Yeah. And so, you know, we're running down multiple paths simultaneously, and at a certain point, something will be the obvious thing to do next. And whatever it is, we want it to be the right thing for the brand to accelerate the understanding and experience and adoption of natural movement. Yeah, I'd like to ask about the fundamental, like, can you explain, I'm looking at one of your sandals. Yeah. What is kind of the science behind <laughs> why it works and what it, what it does yeah. do for your gait? It's pretty simple. Uh, one quarter of the bones and joints of your entire body are in your feet and ankles. You have more nerve endings in the soles of your feet than anywhere but your fingertips and your lips. Clearly, these things are supposed to be used. And what that means is your toes are supposed to spread, your feet are supposed to bend and move and flex and 
feel. If your brain can't feel what's happening at the bottom of your feet, it messes with your balance because that connects to your vestibular system and your brain doesn't know how to use the rest of your body. So all of our shoes are designed, A, with a wide toe box so your toes can spread and move. Like if you move, if you take your big toe and push it in towards your other toes, you can't use your arch naturally. And so you don't have strength in your feet. It also, um, we've seen that if your big toe is pushed in like that, it actually restricts blood flow in your foot. So your foot doesn't feel as much either. So nice wide toe boxes to your toes and spread. Uh, they're low to the ground for balance and agility. We don't elevate your heel, which messes with your posture. And that's what most performance shoes do and sandals as well. The soles are super, super flexible. You can roll them up and stick them in your pocket. So that way your feet can bend naturally. And then they also give you the right combination of protection because you want some protection from whatever you're stepping on or in, but also that ground feel that your brain needs to know what's happening with your feet so that it can control effectively and efficiently the rest of your body. I mean, here's a weird bit of research that's happened a number of times. The more padding you put in your shoe, the harder you tend to hit the ground because your brain is trying to feel something. And the only way it can do it is by hitting harder. That's wild. Yeah. Um, so as I'm looking at your sandals, I imagine if the first experience of wearing them, do people report it's weird, it hurts, it's too not no. enough comfort, or do they, what do they say? Do you, remember, do you remember the Joe Sugarman commercial for his blue blocker sunglasses? Whoa. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's just people, that was good. It's just people <laughs> taking them off and putting them on going, oh my God, oh my God. And then they put them in front of the camera. It's more like that. People put them on. And if I had a dollar for every time someone said verbatim, oh my God, it feels like I'm not even wearing anything because they're super lightweight. Um, and then if I had another dollar for them, you know, when their eyes pop out, they go, oh my God, these are so comfortable because their toes are spreading, their foot is relaxing. So it's it's typically uh, the exact opposite of, uh, well, sometimes it is weird because they're used to having their feet squeezed together and their posture out of whack. And um, some people will say, wow, it feels like I'm about to fall backwards. And then I, I guess I take a look in the mirror and they see that they're actually standing up straight for the first time in a while. Their shoulders relax, their their body kind of settles into natural posture. Okay, one more question real fast. Okay. Have you heard reports that people's knees and hips have maybe not, they've lost the pain or awkwardness in those? Um, I'm not legally allowed to say that. So what I will say instead is read the thousands of reviews and testimonials and you might hear something interesting from what people report. <laughs> but you know what? It has to, it makes sense because if your feet are off, your knees are off, your hips are exactly. off. Exactly. If you don't let your feet do their job, which is basically balance and, and sensation, then that function tries unsuccessfully to move into your ankle, your knee, your hip, and your back. And so when you let your feet do their job, the rest of it can take care of itself. Nice. Yeah. Richie, I think you had something else. Yeah, yeah I was going to go back to, so based on your answer, it was a little bit of you singing the song and a little bit of the song singing you. It's kind of yeah. grown into it yeah. um, and with it. And so... I wouldn't be surprised if you decide to keep it, but I also saw in the notes that your one of your best pieces of advice from a friend that sold two <laughs> said, "Take a check if someone offers it." So offers to be check, de to be determined. But uh, yeah, you, you know, well, I'll tell you, there's two things going on. We're we're at the point now where we're being approached by private equity and some bankers and some VCs, and so and that's been very entertaining because we try to we weed them out really quickly now. There's nothing I, that's more fun than telling a, a guy who wants to offer you millions of dollars no really quickly. 
Um, and so it'll happen like this. Uh, a private equity guy will call and we've learned to do this. We go, okay, before you, we, we start pitching each other, can you tell me what your terms are? And they go, well, I mean, we'd rather talk. It's like, just tell me the terms. They go, what do you mean? It's like, well, like, what do you guys want? How does this all work? And if they usually say something like, well, we're going to give you some money. And then we have a management fee and we go, ah, okay, we're done. They go, what? Yeah, yeah we're not going to pay you back out of your own money. That's mm. not in our best interest. We're trying to grow a company. We need money. Well, uh, but I mean, we do that. Well, yeah, we're not interested. Or if they say, well, you know, we're going to give you all this money and then we want equity and we want three times participating preferred shares. And we go, nope, nope, we're not interested. They go, but that's what people do. It's like, yeah, that's what other people do because they're stupid, mm. but we're, we're not desperate. We don't need to give you bonus points for coming in after we did all the hard work. So um, yes, you're going to help grow this thing, but you're going to grow with us. We're looking for a partner. We're not looking for someone to exploit us. So um, uh, so anyway, what you're, what you're referring to is a friend of mine who did start and sell to footwear companies in the 80s and 90s. And that was his advice. If someone writes you a check, take it. So we haven't had someone offer us a check that is, well, they haven't actually offered at all. And we're, we're very, very picky. Um, <laughs> we, have, we have a fractional CFO who said, if somebody offered you $40 million and it looked like they were going to trash the company, would you take it? And without missing a beat, my wife and I just went, absolutely not. She goes, what about $100 million? I said, well, now you know what kind of a whore I am. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone so, has their price. Yeah. But, you know, there's an interesting thing going on. We're, we're in what we, we refer to as the awkward teenage phase right now. And as the company gets bigger, um, things are going to get messy. So when, because we're making inroads, look, we're putting product on a retail shelf. For us to get space, somebody else has to go away. And some of those people who are going away, who aren't getting the orders that they are used to getting, are multi-billion-dollar companies. Um, they don't take things like losing market share lightly. So it's um, and I don't think um, defensively that way. I don't think about what are the ways that someone else could screw with us and try to make our life miserable. Uh, and that's how people who are desperate think. So, uh, I, I, you know, again. We're open to a lot of possibilities. Ironically, I might be a better spokesperson for natural movement if I wasn't the CEO of a company because then people wouldn't think I have a conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. So the, the future, I don't hypothecate very well. I don't know what the future is going to bring. I don't really care. We're going for the ride. We'll see what makes the most sense. Well, and speaking of a conflict of interest, this literally perfect timing to lead to the next thing I was going to say. So this podcast is about people who want to start scale and potentially exit a business. And one of the other things that I saw in the notes was that when it asked, what would be your advice, best piece of advice for someone wanting to build a $10 million plus company, you said, get a government job with a pension. Yeah, yeah and, I read that. And so I'm, <laughs> I, obviously there's a bit of sarcasm in there, but no, 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 no. You I got to tell you, it, it, it's mostly real. I mean, it's, you know, it's 10% sarcasm and 90% real. And I'll tell you why. Um, look, you, you know this as well as any. Actually, I'll tell you two things. I was at an event um, back in February. I was at a dinner with our law firm when I was at a trade show in Munich. And there's maybe 20 of us in the room. And, and I was the only company that was less than a billion dollars in revenue. And at one point, I was introduced as a founder. And all the people who were CEOs of these other companies came up to me afterwards to congratulate me, not because of how well we were doing, but because they were going, we couldn't do what you did. We can run big companies. We would never be able to start something and build it the way you did. I don't know. We literally, they were saying, we don't know how you did it. So it's, it's just a crazy thing in general. 
But um, but when I say get a government job with a pension, you know, this is just not for the faint of heart. This is really, really hard. There, and especially with what we're doing, I like to say, you know, um, running a business is hard. Making things is hard. Making shoes is even harder. I mean, we're in a crazy difficult business. And we kind of knew that going in. We met people very early on who had been in footwear for 35, 40 years. And they said to us, we would start this with you because we really believe in what you're doing. But we've been around the footwear business long enough to not be stupid enough to try and start a shoe company. Mm. And my wife and I said, well, we're hyper optimistic and naive, but that's the only way things ever get done. So here we go. And, and so when I say get a government job with a pension, if it gives you any pause, if it makes you think, hmm, then you really should get a government job with a pension. And if you're a real entrepreneur, there's nothing I'm going to say to you that's going to talk you out of your stupid idea. Mm-hmm. And by the way, it's probably a stupid idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, on, on this show, there have been a lot of stupid ideas that have made people <laughs> extremely wealthy. Yeah, right. And mm-hmm. ain't that we the need truth. stupid ideas. Oh, no, there's there's definitely stupid ideas that work. And there's also, you know, and, and I say that that part more sarcastically and in jest because everybody thinks their idea is great and they rarely think to do the things to prove themselves wrong to see if they're mistaken rather than try to prove themselves right. It's like, look for the counterfactual. I always say to people when they say they have a product, I go, yeah, um, talk to me when some stranger has taken money out of their pocket and given it to you until Mm -hmm. then. It's just, it's Mm -hmm. just your family just being nice to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting Uh, on on so many different levels here. And and by the way, if for some reason you decided to fast forward through the first three and a half or four minutes of this episode. And you have no idea who we're talking with. We're talking to Stephen <laughs> Sashin here of zero shoes. That's X E R O zero shoes. And, uh, and if you're listening live and you caught us live, uh, but missed the beginning, then that is also for you. And don't forget, we do broadcast live every Thursday from 12 until one Pacific. You can catch that live feed at beyond eight figures Dot com. That's the number eight there. So beyond eight figures.com. Uh, and you can actually join the conversation as well if you're with us live at 866 977 2346. So we do encourage you to call in if you have a question for any of the folks that we feature here, uh, including Stephen Sashin today on Beyond Eight Figures. So let's uh, let's take a, a, another couple of steps backwards, if we can, here, yeah. Stephen, because I, I want to I get walk if I have to, right? And uh, and fortunately, you're in comfortable shoes to be able to do that, so that's good. That's true. Um, so let me just ask you this: as you began uh, growing out of this, just you and your wife, and these, you know, this kit kind of thing, yeah. who was the first key hire? Was it was it just someone who could do some of the legwork so you could focus on sales? Or so customer service. So that was okay. And, and so all of this is online and you've only recently started going into retail, correct? Well, we, we been trying to bust into retail for quite a while, but it really just started kicking in this year. Mm -hmm. I would tell you, I mean, and from a private equity perspective or from an outside capital perspective, one of the things that I could see you doing in terms of taking on a partner is taking on a partner who believes in your vision enough to help you actually open up your own bricks and mortar, kind of a, a yeah. little bit like the uh, the tuck um, untuck it uh, yeah, type model. You, uh, well, you know, it's interesting that you bring them up. There are a number of digitally native companies that um, many of whom have never made money. They're VC funded. They're burning cash like crazy, and then they open up retail. And the reason they're doing that is to prove that they can 
survive in retail and many of them are then losing money on retail as well. So be careful whenever you're looking, talking to anyone who's running a VC funded company that's doing those things. Mm -hmm. um, but there are some interesting things happening in the retail space. I mean, footwear is never going to be all online. People want to have the experience of going and trying on shoes. Sure. The, what, the, the majority of footwear sales online are people buying what they already know they want or something very close to what they already know they want. But when there's new products and new brands, uh, the retail experience is still very important. There's some people who are doing some really interesting things right now, or they're trying to, where they're putting together a number of related brands, and they're either buying those brands or just working with those brands and handling the fulfillment, handling the marketing, handling all the logistics, and opening up those kind of pop-up shops as well. So they basically, it's an omni-channel business with a number of companies all in place so they can take advantage of the economy of scale and the value that you get out of having more data with more people and more things that you can cross-sell and upsell. So, you know, that's a, a really interesting thing. I think we're going to start seeing more of those in the not-too-distant future. Mm -hmm. We actually, sorry, we had, a, we had a, a, a kiosk in a local mall that did really well for us. But the managing of that and the additional employees was just too much for us to handle at this point. So we put it off. But you're right. I think fundamentally, uh, and we I actually had a conversation with someone yesterday who had started and sold maybe five shoe companies. And this is what he and I were talking about is him coming in to help us uh, either build out or identify a partner who can really, who really understands the wholesale side better than we currently do. Mm -hmm. yeah, what are you going to say, Rich? Yeah, I was going to ask, when you were talking about the partners there trying to build out that omni-channel experience, I'd, I'd be interested to know, were they all in the same vertical, which is different brands in the same vertical, or were they just no. the same values? With oh, different yeah, yeah, yeah. Different, different brands in the same vertical. So outdoor companies, for example. Okay. So, you know, us and an outdoor, you know, and some sort of apparel company and a water bottle company and a, you know, fill in the blank. So basically, mm -hmm. if we think from the outdoor space, it would be like creating a miniature branded version of, say, REI. That they where they control the entire channel, so they're not leaking margin anywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and it's an interesting conversation around when, when you talked about how a lot of the CEOs came up to you and were just like, you know, whoa, in terms of I can't believe you can do that, and this that, and the other. I can go in, I can run a hundred million dollar company, but I can never start one. So it, it's a really interesting conversation around whether or not CEOs can actually be made out of founders, right? Because we, when yeah. you get to a certain point. It's you can bootstrap this thing and you can take it to, well, yeah, well, whatever that ceiling of your own limitations are. So at some point, do you see when we talked about key hires, you said one of the first key hires was was in customer service. I assume there's been other key hires uh, along the way. But one of the, the real hires that you're probably going to have to make here at some point, unless you think that there is sort of that that sleeping CEO inside of you. Is do you, I mean do do you and honestly and, and be honest about this? I mean, do you think that yeah. you have the ability to build and manage and grow profitably a, a, a nine-figure-plus company? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> no. In fact, it's funny. Um, my wife and I, and by the way, my wife is my co-founder and CFO, and is just whiz bang brilliant. Um, and if it weren't for her, you know, we wouldn't be here. And she says the same of me. Um, but regardless, we were having lunch a few years ago with the former CEO of Crocs. And we said, you know, we're like six months away from having to hire above ourselves. And he said, no, 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 you guys are really smart. You're like three or four years away. Mm. And, and I don't know if his timing is right, but it's clearly a very different set of skills and requirements. And we've been very aware of that since day one. The, at the same time, let's take the letters out of it and just talk about the function. 
So what it takes to, to manage uh, the, a, a nine-figure company is, of course, very different than, frankly, what it takes to manage a $20 million company is different than a 50, is different than a 100, is different than whatever. But the CEO role is, is, can be a different thing. So um, uh, Blake McCoskey, who's the, technically, I think he's actually still technically the CEO of Tom's, but he doesn't run the company. He's just the brand ambassador, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And arguably, my most useful skill set is uh, marketing, communication, content creation, et cetera, and just being the guy who who understands this whole thing of natural movement better than the average bear and can can share that. Um, um, so I don't know what the titles will be, but the function of kind of running things, both my wife and I are very clear that at a in the not too distant future we need to bring in. Uh, bigger guns. Our COO has is actually kind of one of those guys. He was the, the CEO of MEC, which is the REI of Canada. He actually ran uh, private label products for uh, for REI. He's he he's the kind of person who arguably could be that if we're going to bring somebody internally, um, or you know who knows again if we find a strategic partner, they may have that in place. Yeah, and so to to that end, as you as you look back and and just so that we're clear on this, <clears throat> what outside of customer service then who who was that that next key hire that helped you go from you know six figures to to seven because that's usually a pretty pretty good yeah. size jump did you bring in uh did you bring in that ceo coo no. was that the uh the next yeah. one no, no, no. Um, six to seven was actually pretty easy for us. So I think we went from like 200 grand to 500 grand to 800 and change to one point something or um, actually we went from we went from I know we went from 772 to 1.4 million in a year. Uh, and, and so the second hire was someone to handle fulfillment, just to be able to get stuff out the door. Mm-hmm. You know, we couldn't do it on our own. Mm-hmm. The third was an additional customer service person. And then the fourth might have been another customer service person. We pride ourselves on providing good customer service. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, here's my favorite one. So when people, uh, happily, you haven't asked me this question, but you might, when people ask, you know, like, what's the number one factor that got us to wherever the hell we are? Um, I like to quote a, a teacher that I had. I, have a, I got a master's degree in film. And one of my professors was the director, now late director, Milos Forman. And somebody asked Milos, you know, how do you make a good movie? And he goes, well, you know, 90% of making movie is uh, casting. And the other 10% is um, casting. And so... <laughs> I like to say for business, it's 90% luck and the other 10% is luck. And then there's a whole other 100% called working your butt off and hoping you're smart enough to put out the fires that showed up today that weren't there yesterday. And very, uh, almost seven years ago, a friend of ours was walking his dog, which he normally didn't do, normally his wife did. And the dog bumped into another dog friend. It was being walked by a guy who normally doesn't walk his dog, normally his wife does. So while the dogs are doing their dog thing, our friend says, hey, you know, what do you do? And he's, well, I was the head of global product design for Crocs, but I just recently retired. And our friend says, oh, my friend Stephen Elena has a shoe company. And at that time, again, we were selling a do-it-yourself sandal kit. So we didn't mm-hmm. have a shoe company. But um, this guy, his name is Dennis Driscoll, gave our friend his phone number. I sat on it for a couple of months thinking, what the hell is this guy going to want to talk to me for? But eventually, I called him up. We had lunch. And at the end of what was supposed to be a one-hour lunch, four hours later, when it was dinner, uh, I said, boy, I'd love to be able to work with someone like you someday, someone who, you know, is just getting his feet wet, but knows what he's doing. And Dennis said, well, what about me? I said, well, uh, I don't think I can afford you. He goes, I'm retired. I went, you're hired. <laughs> so, uh, 
so Dennis came on board. I mean, we met him. It was a complete fluke. And he has really just steered the ship when it comes to product. And if it weren't for him, I, we look around to everybody in our business and say, if it weren't for them, we wouldn't be here, including our warehouse people and our customer service people and pretty much everybody. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at all of the different shoes that you guys offer, yeah, all of those are manufactured in China and then shipped here because you had mentioned China before. Right. So is that, is that how it's done now? And is that part of the future to, to kind of mitigate some of that risk? Well, it's an interesting question. Ninety Over 98% of athletic footwear is made overseas, the majority of it in China. The few people who aren't manufacturing in, in China um, have their own factories that they've opened in other places just because they were following the labor and trying to get things less expensive. As China has grown, the middle class has grown, and it's more and more expensive to work there. But it's I like to say it's literally not possible to manufacture performance footwear in America, especially if you're a smaller company, um, in the same way that it's literally not possible to make any of the devices that we're using to have this conversation in America. Mm. Um, or as I said, when I was lobbying Congress and trying to keep these tariffs, these new tariffs from happening, I said, it's not possible to make these kind of shoes here in America in the same way that the president isn't able to uh, get a domestic version of the device he uses to tweet every day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So what, what's next? I mean, do you just keep kind of going incrementally here and, you know, maybe you get 10% year over year growth? And, you <laughs> I'm know, sorry. Yeah, you know, I mean, look, you know, reality. We're, we're, we're 84% um, compounded over the last four years. So if I see it, for me, anything under 60 makes me cry and anything over 100 makes me mildly content. Uh-huh. So, uh, <laughs> You know, we're, we're expanding into Europe where the whole idea of natural movement is frankly much more accepted. We're expanding into Asia. Um, the domestic, again, the wholesale thing is really taking off. And, and so uh, in a way, right now, we're kind of in, a, in slingshot mode for 2020. Mm. So we, this is going to be a weird one. By going into wholesale the way we did, we ended up um, losing a bunch of top line revenue because we had product that we would have sold directly. That the retailers said, we want all that product. So we were happy to give it to them because it's setting ourselves up for working with them in the future, but it cost us some real money on the top line uh, mm -hmm. to do so. So we're, we're 20, it's weird for me to think that I'm already looking forward to the fall of 2020. Mm -hmm. So I have a question that kind of relates to that exactly. So part of the reason people go to conferences big conferences when the company shows up, they might not get any business, but if you don't show up at the conference, you don't look, your brand isn't big enough or something. So yeah. some yeah. of the play of getting on those shelves is just to get the brand out there, yeah. right? You're, you're losing the margin. I'm obsessed, do a lot in e-commerce. And I know we talked a little bit about it when you were on reinvention radio as well, but I'm, I'm interested in that topic when it comes to Amazon, how much are you focusing on Amazon and Whoa, how are you controlling boy. your brand experience there? Oh, that is a really interesting question. The evil empire. Um, so right now about, wait, I got to do some math in my head. About uh, math, 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 math. Maybe 15% of our sales are coming from Amazon. Uh, don't hold me to that number because I'm doing math in my head and that's not going to work. I used to be able to do that. I, I don't know if you've lost, I can't do names or math in my head. Um, if we're- you can. Well, uh, just, no, he's inside, jo inside joke. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> it's funny joke. We live in a state where I, I can tip by just doubling the tax because otherwise I'd be screwed. But mm. um, so Amazon's a really interesting beast. 
And we, we, we originally got on, the footwear category was closed. They wouldn't even let me advertise in the footwear category. And then I got a phone call maybe three and a half years ago from Amazon saying, you're showing up in the autocomplete. So we'd like you to be selling in footwear. So that's how we got in. And um, autocomplete meaning search. Yeah. So as people started typing, people were typing in zero shoes mm -hmm. and looking for us and we mm -hmm. weren't on their platform and they saw that in the search results and called mm -hmm. me. So that was kind of cool. Um, and so um, where to begin the one of the in here, I'll tell you the whole story because what the hell. So if you want to hmm, try to think of how to say this, you know, you're in a dangerous business when um, can I say the word douchebag? Sure. Douchebag internet marketers are selling courses on how to make money and it involves the business that you're in. So when we first started Zero Shoes, um, internet marketers were selling courses on how to make money by doing ad or advertising arbitrage. So build a website around some keywords, run ads to drive traffic to those keywords or to those web pages, and you'll make money when people click on the ads that you put on those pages. And they were targeting barefoot running and natural movement and all the keywords that I cared about. And so we couldn't do any paid search because the big shoe companies were spending between 2 and $5 per click when they didn't even have a product to sell. So it was, it was a few years until we had the ability to do paid search. Well, something seems to be going on lately. The douchebag um, internet marketers are now teaching people how to start Amazon businesses. And basically by finding someone who will drop ship product for you and they go, you know, here's some, some niches to identify. It has become very clear to me that someone, when they're teaching people how to start Amazon businesses, is talking about barefoot running and natural movement because there's suddenly a whole bunch of Chinese companies who are now drop shipping products that are basically water shoes. They're not really, they're, they're not really well made mm -hmm. um, and they cost about a third of what ours do, third to half of what ours do. But when I look at the listings and see how there's multiple quote companies selling the exact same product from the exact same drop shipper or then buying enough that they're, you know, bringing it into the States and then reselling it. It's very clear that they are taking market share from those of us selling real products um, with these less expensive products and, and that that's how they got into it. That's the strategy. I actually found someone recently who built out a whole website for this product. Um, make a long story short, I got him on the phone. He didn't know who I was or what I did. And he said things like, well, you know, we spent years developing it with our Asian manufacturer. And then I found the Asian manufacturer selling the exact same product for years. The, mm -hmm. He never did any development. And his website has, re quote, reviews from two years before he ever claimed he had a product to sell. So complete scam. Um, and when that happens, you know, he didn't get the idea from, it, it wasn't his own idea. So Amazon is just a very interesting beast, if you will. There's no way to avoid it. And, and one way that we deal with it is that we are uh, we sell through FBA. We're a 3P seller. We don't sell to Amazon. We sell through Amazon. So we control the listing. We control the pricing. We control the horizontal. We control the vertical, et cetera. And um, I hope someone gets that reference. So, <laughs> um, so um, uh, does that answer your question about Amazon? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's this dilemma of... <clears throat> they were the ones who helped create enough trust for people to sell online because they were, yeah. but yet also some of their biggest problems now are with counterfeit and other people selling because yeah. they're putting all, you know, we all three sell the same thing hypothetically right. mm -hmm. and we have the same, I'm blanking on the name of the, not UPC code, but what they ASIN. call it. Was ASIN. That? ASIN. Yeah, ASIN. exactly. And so 
they have regular ones. One of us has a counterfeit. Yeah. We all we all throw it in the same bin. Some people are yeah. getting counterfeit. Some people are getting regular. So it's just it's that it's whole tough. controlling of your own brand. It's really tough. And and there are people. Uh, and frankly, Amazon cares about the people who give them money, not the people who make them money. So uh, so when things like that, I mean, here's an, a simple example. The Amazon return policy for footwear is pretty much the same as almost anywhere, which is you need to return things in new and resellable condition. Otherwise, they can't resell them. And so, and yet they take things back and just make us pay for them. Mm -hmm. so we've gotten stuff back from it. We've actually, even worse, we've had people buy our product on Amazon and then post scathing reviews all over the internet about how we sold them used shoes that were full of mud. Mm -hmm didn't do it. Amazon did it. And we had no control over the entire process. Mm -hmm. So it is a whole other universe, but of, you know, avoid at your own peril because there's a lot of people there and there's, and they're trying to, they're trying to make it a little better in theory in a couple of months, they will make it possible. So you can finally know the answer to the question by being on Amazon. Is it making me more money or costing me more, more money mm -hmm. Are people coming to my website, but then buying on Amazon or vice versa, or some combination thereof, and you know you can actually do the math to, to make a more educated decision. But if that if that those if that math does not uh, uh, lean in the favor of Amazon, that tool will go away very quickly. <laughs> sure. hmm. All right. Well, look, man, we can uh, we can certainly have this conversation all day, and wish we wish we could. I mean, we didn't even get a chance to talk about how you turned down uh, the Shark Tank offer and had uh, you uh, know all that visibility and everything else. Yeah. And I know there's so much more to the story. For sure. Uh, any, any, in 30 seconds or so here, Stephen, any, any words of advice for someone who's either looking to start uh, or scale or exit from, uh, from a business? Uh, good luck. Good luck. You're right. I know it's a track, man. You know, I mean, it, nobody knows that better than you guys. And, uh, and I'll tell you, it's, uh, it, it has been uh, really interesting to watch uh, as you've grown and evolved uh, over the over, I mean I don't even remember how long it's been but it's been uh, probably about 18 months or so as Richie alluded to since we did have you uh, on reinvention radio so it's been you know quite some time already but even in that short ish period of time uh, just watching you guys evolve uh, has certainly been been a pleasure uh, last thing here man and uh, by the way you guys can get more information on zero shoes if you just go to beyond eightfigures.com forward slash zero that's x-e-r-o all lowercase so beyond eight figures.com forward slash zero x-e-r-o uh real quick here last 20 odd seconds or so you did come to the new media summit you had a chance yeah. to to come there to get booked on shows what was your experience like and uh, would you recommend others go to the new media summit in the future it ruined my life here's why <laughs> um so i went in thinking you know i want to get booked on some podcasts little did i know 50 people would say i want you on my podcast and then on the way home and I'm looking at these 50 cards from people who want me, I'm going, Oh my God, that's like, you know, 60 to 70 hours of my life. I was not <laughs> thinking about that. And then the other thing, um, I ended up getting inspired to start a podcast. I haven't told you this. Nice. Got one at, uh, uh, the website is join the movement movement. And you will, um, you'll get a, you're the first person I'm going to tell this number to. Sweet. It's been there. It's been running for three months. It's a weekly podcast. We've got 25,000 downloads in three months. Nice. That is awesome. Wow, Congrats nice. on that. Steven Sashin from Zero Shoes. Thanks so much for hanging out with us here on Beyond Eight Figures. Talk to you guys really soon. Take care, everybody.